What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, the record run for stocks as the S&P 500 hits a new intraday high. The big question now, can the remarkable move from the March lows keep going? We debate that with our investment committee. And joining me for the hour today are Stephanie Link, Josh Brown, John Nigerian, Sarat Sethi, and Bryn Talkington, who's managing partner at Requisite Capital Management. We do begin how we always do. A look at stocks. Earlier today, we did hit that record on the S&P. Josh, it's hard to believe that the S&P was at 2,191 back on March the 23rd. And here we are having rallied 55 percent to this new intraday high. It's remarkable to look at that, but it's also important to think about where we could go from here. So what's interesting about new all-time highs, uh, my director of research, Michael Batnick, took a look at the median time between when you print a a, uh, closing high uh, until the next time. And it's actually on average about 90 days. So we're 126 days out from that date that you mentioned. So all things considered, if you remove that little chunk from March and April of what went on, actually, this looks like a pretty average year. And uh, what's really gratifying is that when you look at, you know, under the hood, what are the stocks that are have gotten us back to this uh, potential closing record high? Look, the stay-at-home stocks, every time they look like they're going to roll over, somebody comes in and buys them. So look at uh, Zoom. That one looked like it was in trouble last week, technically. Right back up with an upgrade. Um, Teladoc had this really nice uh, comeback. And then you think about um, DocuSign, Peloton. And all of them, when they looked shaky, they came back. So those stocks have been, have been fairly important. Um, but then take a look at Home Builders, XHB. You cannot find a name in this index that doesn't look incredible on a technical basis right now. The industrials are trading sideways after digesting a huge move to the upside. Materials are hanging in there. They're at record highs. They're not going anywhere. So I think when you consider the balance of all of the different things that look good right now, um, yeah, we're justified making a new high. You might not like how much of it came on the back of uh, multiple expansion. But wh- what do you want me to do about that? I can't help you with yeah. that. Steph, I mean, it, go- it makes me think of what Jim Cramer <laughs> said the other day of, of this grand slam, in, in his words. You've got all of these different areas that are now, you know, apparently working at the, at the same time when you, when you really consider. I think it's important to consider how we got here and why we are here off of those March lows. But more important is sort of now what is the big question. Yeah, I do hope that it widens out for sure. But look, the market's higher because the economy is is recovering faster than expected. And it's discounting 
the profitability recovery faster than expected. And it's also discounting the potential for operating leverage. So you have the winners, like uh, Josh just mentioned, the stay-at-home beneficiaries. Um, so companies like AMD and P&G and Costco and Twitter, where the demand is there, but they also have put in place some good cost controls or they have pricing power. So they have seen a recovery in their earnings faster than expected. They should be the leaders. But just imagine if you actually got some of the laggards to start to see operating leverage. Just imagine if you saw FedEx increase their profitability by 50% and they could do it if they get demand because they've cut costs so much. Same thing with PPG, same thing with UPS. So I'm looking at some of these stocks that haven't really recovered as much where there's potential into 2021. In terms of that operating leverage, in terms of the better earnings, um, I'm not saying it's all or nothing. That's why I want to see it widen out. I can still see the winners win, but I want to see the laggards start to play catch up as well. And I think you're going to see that in 2021. John Ajarian, it took less than five months to get back to these new highs. It's the third fastest rally to recoup all that it's lost. Mike Santoli takes a look at this as well and says that it's the strongest 100-day rally ever, ending the shortest bear market ever as well. Yeah, well, that's great work by Michael, as usual. And uh, Scott, I would point to uh, the, uh, the amount of oomph that it causes, uh, or rather that is necessary to get these stocks to these levels. Um, I mean, this is not easy. A, a lot of folks, of course, two years ago, Scott, it was always the law of large numbers. And my, Michael Santoli, tip of the hat to you for that. Um, but what we really witness here, Scott, is volumes of trade into these names. And it is, uh, these volumes are not just high in the options, the derivatives, they're high in the underlying stocks as well. Obviously, some of that's driven by ETFs. We talk about that on this show a lot, that you know, when you're buying these ETFs, those ETFs are buying the shares. Uh, and so the more people index in that way, the more that that provides that oomph. But man, this is some serious lift, serious heavy lifting that these stocks have done. It hasn't been easy. And yet, as Josh pointed out at the top, very fast, extremely fast and holding on to these gains, building on them virtually every single week, Scott. So those are all positives rather than just a, a sharp jump up and then a sharp uh, sell off right back down. Uh, that dip back down just hasn't come. Well, I just wonder, Bryn, what are the catalysts that are there to take stocks higher than, than where they are now? I mean, I think there's a statement in the market today that retail, you know, they have these big box blowout numbers and yet the stocks are lower. Why? Because I think there's some doubt in the market as to whether it can continue whether it was mostly stimulus-backed gains, consumers had money in their pockets, they were spending it in places that had their earnings today, whether it was Home Depot or Costco, and then they're going to probably look good at Target and Lowe's tomorrow. But is it sustainable? Yeah, well, I think what's coming soon to a theater near us are earnings upgrades for the S&P and probably year-end price targets for the S&P as so many people had pulled those earlier. And so if you look, like right now, we have about a little over 90% of the companies in the S&P have reported so far. And as it stands today, we're coming in almost $28 per share this quarter. Estimates were right under $23. So that's about a 20% beat on the upside. And so I think as we start moving later on in the year, we're gonna get better guidance because I think quite frankly, these earnings have been exceptional. 
I know some people had, you know, negative earnings for second quarter were going to come into the play, come into play. And look, we're at almost $28 for the quarter. That's incredible. And so I think more green shoots are on the horizon as you get more earnings on the, on the upside. I mean, I think with something like Walmart, when you give 80 million Americans $1,200, um, they spend it at Walmart, Amazon, and then open up the rest at Robinhood to trade options. So, you know, unless we get some more stimulus there, <laughs> I think probably the best numbers are in, are in, in the books for Walmart. But in the general market, I think earnings are going to go higher. Surat, how do you see it? I mean, okay, earnings are better than expected, but expectations had come down so much. Is it really that much to, to celebrate? Market's funny. I mean, it makes of, of things what it wants to. But you, can, you could say, oh, yeah, of course we're, they're, they're better than expected now, but expectations had come down so far. Was it really a high bar to jump over? It wasn't really a high bar because, you I mean, if you think back to two, three months ago, we really – I mean, most companies were coming out with no guidance at all, and we really didn't know what we, what we were going to see in the fall. I think going forward, Scott, to your point, expectations now uh, seem to be a little higher going to the next couple of quarters. So it's really going to be the companies that will perform, and I think it's going to be top line and operating leverage. A combination of both those are going to get well rewarded by the market, and it would be good to see that come through not just in technology, but, you know, to Stephanie's point, to some of the industrial companies, some of the others that can take advantage of this. Because I think coming out of this, what, what, what is, is a really pleasant surprise is how fast some companies have reacted and have turned their margins, uh, you know, in a positive stance. So I think there's more good things to come, but it's going to be in, in different areas. Some things like the industrials, uh, chemicals, materials, other areas we haven't really seen uh, uh, do well so far. Well, I don't know. Materials, Surat, are up 63% from the March 23rd low, right? Industrials are up 58% well, from the March 23rd low. Well, I think specifically when the, in there, uh, Scott, you got to look at stocks, stocks like Honeywell, uh, Ingersoll Rand on the industrial side, uh, you know, aggregate companies like Martin Marietta. So really those companies that haven't come back as well, um, you know, the indexes have, but you got to look at the specific stocks within there. Josh, any part of you feel like there's some level of complacency w within all of this? You know, we're, we're going to enter the fall, okay? Schools are going to open. Virus is still out there. Yeah, the 14-day new infection rate is down, thank God, but it's still up there. It's, the virus is still spreading in, in states. We don't know what the fall is going to look like from a flu standpoint combined with the virus either. There are some pretty nasty predictions out there from people like the CDC about the health environment in the fall. Are, are we taking any of that into account as we talk about the market today? So I think the beauty of everything that you just laid out, that whole litany of potential um, negative catalysts, is that what it ends up doing is reinforcing all of the drivers behind the rally. So if you're right and we get these nasty surprises, they open some schools and there are some infection outbreaks, um, etc., yeah, I think at first the market's reaction will be to, to freak out. But then think about all the drivers that come about as a result of that. It reinforces work from anywhere, which are the best stocks in the market. It reinforces e-commerce and shipping and fulfillment, which are the best stocks in the market. Um, and then I think like you've got the second order of magnitude where it pumps up home building because the longer this nightmare is part of our lives, the more inclination there will be to renovate a home that you are de facto stuck in or to find a new, larger home to move into, preferably one that's got um, room to build an office. So those are the best stocks right now. So in a lot of ways, those negatives you laid out 
will only serve as catalysts to affirm the bulls that are in the leading stocks in the market. And it'll work against the airlines, et cetera, okay, et cetera. So, so you're making, uh, you're, you're making a you're good point. What you're saying seems to me consensus. You're, you're making a good point. I mean, doesn't that keep a lid then on the potential of these value cyclical reopen epicenter stocks? It doesn't matter. Those stocks don't matter. They have no market cap. They don't matter. I wish, I wish that weren't true. Maybe they matter for sentiment. Maybe they matter if you're like a large cap manager and you have some benchmark where you have to own a certain amount of value stocks. But like you're asking me what they mean for the market. Not a lot. Well, I'm saying uh, uh, they matter in the context of all of these new calls coming out from the strategists who say that you should rotate from all of the winning stocks that you just said into these laggards. Scott, I just bought. All right. Fine. Fine. I just bought Simon property. I just bought Simon property this week. Okay, so this is like this is the equivalent of a YOLO trade for me. I don't have a lot. SPG. This is exactly the type of stock that will work if the worst case scenario doesn't develop and life starts to get back to normal uh, this fall, despite the risk of reopening schools, et cetera. So I happen to think um, Simon Property, uh, it's down $100 from its, from, its, uh, from its pre-COVID high and down almost $150 from its all-time high. And everyone understands what the challenges are for malls and indoor shopping and, and indoor dining. Everyone gets it. Like that, none, of that, none of that is not priced into this particular REIT. So I own it. And I think if there is that reversal that you're talking about and that all the strategists are talking about, Simon will be one of the biggest beneficiaries because it's almost at its low. Like it had a little bit of a bounce, but really hasn't gone anywhere. In the meantime, I think the distribution, the dividend is safe. And I think the fundamentals are better than what most people think. They are now back to collecting a much higher rate of rents than they were this spring. Meanwhile, occupancy is about 92 percent, which is in line with Simon's historical average pre-corona times. So, yeah, I think you want to own some of that trade, some of that value cyclical rotation. Do you want to, like, pound your fist on the table and make that your whole, your, your biggest bet ever? I don't think so. But Steph, there are a lot of people who are trying to pound the table and say, now's the time for value. Josh makes a good point. Okay, so he was willing to buy Simon Property Group, but that's a very selective play, and he gave you the good reasons as to why he thought that was the move to make right now, but as a blanket statement of saying, okay, now it's time to rotate from tech and growth into value and let's say industrials and some of these other cyclical stocks, why are those stocks going to work now? Well, they may not work now. They may be 2021 stories, right? But they are still many of these sectors you just talked about, which is, by the way, energy, industrials, and financials are 20% of the S&P 500. So that compares to 27% for technology. So these stocks, there's a place, I think, in a portfolio for these stocks because they're still down and out. I think you can still own quality companies that are cyclicals and that are more value, um, good balance sheets, good market share, good, uh, good uh, management teams, free cash flow generation. They can cover that dividend. So the, those are the names that you want to look for within these sectors, like, right? Which, but you do like not want to have an entire... When you say that, like, which, which names come that, uh, top of mind for you? Okay, Union Pacific comes top of mind. UPS comes top of mind. PPG comes top of mind. Um, many retailers come top of mind because I still believe in the consumer. So I still think you want to have some of these names. But I also have argued and debated and discussed why you want to own some of the defensive secular growth names too because the total addressable markets are so powerful. And so therefore, I'll bet you anything, the stay-at-home uh, situation that we have makes several technology companies and 
their total addressable markets on the low side, that, that maybe we see upside to the Internet of Things or to cloud or to wearables. So to me, I still want to have exposure there. I want to be careful and I want to be tactical. I don't want to, you know, obviously want to have right-sizing the positions, taking some gains along the way. You know I did with Facebook, and it still goes up every day. You know I did with Amazon, and that still goes up every day. Not, not, not apologizing for a profit, but at the same time, I have been buying, uh, in fact, added to UPS last week, mainly because that company is doing such a good job with that new CEO. And I've been pounding the table on that name since it yielded 4% back, uh, back in March. So I think you definitely want to have a combination of both of these names. I don't think you want all or nothing. But let me ask you this. Why do you think, Steph, that Depot's down today, that Walmart's down today? And do you think it has anything to do with the fact that despite they had these both had blowout numbers. I mean, just astonishing yeah. metrics w within the, the reports. This notion that, you know, unless the consumer who's struggling mightily gets more stimulus from Washington, the good days are over for those trades. You've already seen it. Well, I mean, that, I mean, I was nervous about Home Depot. We talked about it last week, and we talked about it yesterday with, uh, with you on, uh, on Squawk Box. But we, look, Home Depot is up 30% year-to-date. It trades at 29 times earnings. The average multiple that this stock has traded at is 21, 22 times. So you have seen massive multiple expansion because they're a beneficiary. We get it. And the whisper number for the total comp was 20 to 23%. So they did 23.4%. It was basically an inline versus the expectations. And you know stock picking, it's all about expectations, right? Fundamentals and expectations and sentiment. And this is a one-way trade where everybody was long this name. So there's not one thing that I am going to poo-poo on this quarter. I mean, transactions, ticket, up both double-digit, inventories, down. They're, they're seeing record digital sales. I mean, across the board. So if you want to sell this kind of name because expectations are too high, okay. I still believe the trends are going to stay very favorable for housing, and I want to still have a quality name like this. But I'm going to also own a DR Horton, which has a little bit more beta to it, right? On Walmart, it was, it's also a 15% year-to-date, and the comp at 9.3%, I think that's about what expectations were. But e-commerce up 100%. That is sick. That is just absolutely crazy. I, and it's, I hear you. It does speak to the consumer shifting their trends. And so it's all about expectations. If you want to sell these stocks off today, go, go right ahead. I do find the industrials, financials, and, and some of the cyclicals a better value and risk reward. But again, I don't want to own all or one. It has to bode pretty well, Doc, you would think, for Lowe's and Target tomorrow. Um, and that's certainly where the bets are being placed, if you, as you've seen in the, in the options market, right? That's right, Scott. Um, in particular, those two. Um, yes, we had, to Steph's point, uh, strong buying activity in Home Depot and Walmart. But these other two have been outperforming like crazy, Target and Lowe's, that is. I mean, you look at year-to-date, Lowe's versus Home Depot, they are neck and neck, Scott. But over the last three months, Lowe's has just been extending uh, much more than Home Depot has. Now, why that is, I can't exactly tell you. Um, but I will say that uh, the searches, when we look at alt data, Scott, and we look at the searches, when, you're, when you go to Home Depot, um, only 25% of those people uh, that go to HomeDepot.com actually go over to Lowe's next. Um, but on the other hand, the, the folks at Lowe's have also shopped at Home Depot, and that's 50% have gone over to Lowe's and shopped there after checking out Home Depot. So this is uh, a trend just in the last three months that we've noted here, Scott, that is really outperformance 
for Lowe's, and that's why it's basically doubled up on the performance over this same period. Target, my gosh, the online searches at Target. Um, again, they're not a grocer. You know that Pete says all the time that uh, the Target doesn't want to be the grocer that, for instance, right. Walmart is. Uh, they just want to get that search and have you buy the other stuff at Target. And they've been winning in that regard. They're up to Steph's point again, 100% on search versus where they were I get it. flat just in the last three quarters. It's explosive, Scott. So, Surat, you tell me what's better for investors to focus on. You're, you're, a, you're a low shareholder, right? Do you focus? I am. I am. Um, do, do you focus today on the strength of the Depot and Walmart reports, or do you focus on the reaction in the stocks today to to what were really good reports as you look ahead to tomorrow? In other words, would you sell lows? Would you take profits in lows today because you see the reaction to great reports to today? Why? Why wait? Uh, I, I won't, Scott. I mean, I, I like lows. I would. Uh, well, the thing to, for Lowe's that's different from Home Depot, Lowe's is more of a restructuring story. It's a margin expansion story with new management in there. So the metric that I'm looking for mainly tomorrow is what did they do with margin expansion and what the goals are going forward. Now, if they do hit those and they actually give us some guidance, I would like to own the stock for a longer time. Uh, but it has started to become an outsized position. And I think the sector, when you look at companies like uh, Home Depot, Lowe's, Fortune Brands, Masco have all had such a good run that as a portfolio manager, uh, I have been taking profits. And I mentioned a couple of shows ago, I did take profits from Masco. And, and if these stocks keep on running, and maybe they take a little breath right now, uh, but if we get more money in for the consumer and things go well, uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if I take more money off these and put it into other areas. Well, I'm wondering, Bryn, if, if these stocks are now just too expensive. You know, we, we just had the valuation of Lowe's up there. That was, you know, what was it, 21-something forward. I've got a P.E. on lows here of, of, of 27 or so. I, I mean, are these stocks just their valuations have gotten too big as all this money has, has plowed into these stocks? Well, I mean, valuations in general, let's just, let's just be clear, have come up across the board. But I think when you deconstruct the three of them, like a Walmart, Home Depot and Lowe's. I mean, I do think Walmart will have some headwind because the expectations were so high. And because once again, I think it was around 80 million people getting $1,200 checks. That's in the stock, but it does have a nice yield. I will say that with Home Depot and Lowe's, I mean, housing starts, which we haven't talked about, you know, came, up to, came out today up 22%, which annualizes about a million and a half new starts. That's incredible. And you don't build a home and just move your old furniture into the new house. You go and buy new furniture, you do new things, you, you remodel. And so I think housing starts as a leading indicator, you know, really bodes well, maybe a little bit more for, for, for Lowe's than Home Depot. But, you know, I think they may have a digestion period, but I definitely wouldn't be a seller of a Lowe's and Home Depot on the strong heels of this, because I think as the economy recovers, this long-term move, um, into the suburbs, whether you're remodeling or buying a new home, is going to bode well for those two names. There's another, you know, I agree with Brian. That's such a that's such a key point she makes. Um, household formation, demographically speaking, was already poised to explode before the pandemic. We just didn't know if the 29-year-olds of 2020 were going to be renting in, uh, you know, in in uh, in in large metropolitan areas, or were going to be buying 
and moving into actual houses in the suburbs of those metro areas. I think we have our answer based on data sets from all over the place, whether you want to look at credit and debit card spending or you want to look at what Zillow is saying about searches for real estate. So we know now that there is going to be a, a de-urbanization to some extent and Home Depot and Lowe's that plays right into their strengths. So you get a, you get a yawn at, at great news. Um, that's just because these stocks have run up so much, which I think Stephanie made that point. Right. Um, but that doesn't mean we're anywhere near the end to this, to this trend. Hey, but what about this other thing that, that Carl Quintanilla flagged something from TrimTabs that I thought was interesting and I wanted to bring up with you guys. Steph, TrimTabs says on, uh, August is on track to be the third month of the past four where insider selling exceeded $15 billion, a pace unseen since 2006. Uh, if insiders are selling at that pace, what does that say about where we are in the market and how the typical investors should be thinking about stocks? I don't think you ever have to apologize for taking a profit. We know that stocks are up, the S&P is up 50% from the lows, so I get that. But I just, I've always believed that people sell for all different reasons, tax purposes, profit taking, diversification, but they buy for just one. And they buy because they believe in their company and they believe in their strategy and they believe in the, in the foundation of what they're doing. So I pay more attention to buys, insider buys, versus insider sells. How should we look at this, Josh? You, we should not look at it at all. Um, prior peaks of huge insider selling have occurred in 2009. Imagine if you thought that was a, a signal uh, to, to invest or not invest then. 2013, I remember being on the air. We did a whole raft of programs focusing on uh, insider selling. Of course, if you sold in 2013, I think uh, you sold just as the market was making a new record high and entering into the secular bull market that we've now been in for seven years. Um, there have been other peaks in insider selling in, in uh, 2017. There was a great stock market performance that year. I think the S&P was up 27% and tons of insider sell. It's one of those things like looking at margin debt. There is absolutely no signal, but it makes for such a great newsletter headline. So when you get that information in your inbox, you think like you're in possession of like, oh, this is the sell signal I've been waiting for. Doesn't work. Don't do it. I guess pay attention to it for context. Do not formulate a forward-looking investment plan based on aggregate insider buying or selling. All right. There's not a lot there. Well, all right. Well, I'm glad we discussed it. Let, let's focus then on our investment committee buying and selling. We already did some of that. But, Bryn, you sold Snap. Tell us why. Yeah, I mean, TikTok seems inevitable that it's coming to America with an American company. And obviously, Oracle has now entered into the conversation, which, from what I understand, makes more sense than Microsoft. But you can look at a chart of Snap, and when the original TikTok, when, the, when, when President Trump said he was going to kick it out, Snap rallied. But with Instagram Reels, which is Facebook, and with TikTok most likely getting bought by a big U.S. tech company, I just think that puts pressure on, on Snap, and the, and the chart shows that. And so I think the, sh the chart looks terrible. Um, it's holding in support here. But once again... I have a, a, a finite amount of money I want to invest, and I want to buy stocks that are going higher that have tailwinds, um, not a headwind, which I think, unfortunately for Snap, has one today. Tell me quickly, if you could, about Teladoc, which I understand you bought as well, and it gets upgraded today to outperform. Josh mentioned this uh, a little bit early. Uh, Verity Research uh, raises the price target to 250, goes outperform, as we said, on Teladoc. 
Yeah, well, you know, I think Teladocs, I hadn't owned it before. I think it's one of those unique opportunities to buy one of these, you know, really new growth companies. The synergies between Livongo and Teladoc are real. This was not a, com a competitive merger. It's a strategic merger. They only have 25% overlap. And so I think that the management said that Teladoc and Livongo are going to create 500 million in revenue synergies and then they still kept their guidance over the next few years mm -hmm. of 30, you know, 30 plus percent revenue growth. And so I just thought it was a great opportunity. It was at 250. I think it got into the 180s. You know, I bought it yesterday, close to the close. And so I think it's just a good opportunity to get into a company that the market misunderstood and I think under oversold it. And so I think it's going to be a big winner, disruptive. They, they own this space. And I think it's a great strategic merger with Livongo. Gotcha. All right, coming up, take a look at this mystery chart, a stock that has more than doubled this year, just got a new price target bump as well to a street high. Almost everyone in our investment committee owns it as well. We have the name, the debate in our call of the day. Plus, he's one of the most exciting golfers on the PGA Tour right now, one of the best as well. World number two, Justin Thomas, JT joins us. It's a halftime exclusive. We're back in just two minutes. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently, and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back. It's time now for the headlines. And for that, we go to Sue Herrera. Hi, Sue. Hello, Scott. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. The administration's tops arms control envoy is not ruling out a meeting between President Trump and Russian leader Vladimir Putin on extending some strategic arms reduction treaty measures. Those measures are due to expire in February, but he says nothing has been scheduled so far. NBC News has reported President Trump wants an in-person meeting with Putin before the election. The chamber's two leaders have two different interpretations of a Senate panel's report on Russia and the 2016 election. Republican Mitch McConnell says it reaffirms that President Trump did not collude with Russia. Democrat Chuck Schumer says it shows how much the Trump campaign relied on hacked Russian information while trying to connect with Moscow's operatives. And saying it would be impossible to get a fair hearing, Roger Stone is dropping his fight to reverse his conviction for lying to Congress. President Trump's commutation kept Stone from going to prison, but it did not affect his conviction. And you are up to date, Scotty. I will send it back to you. All right, Sue, we appreciate that. Thank you, Sue Herrera. Let's talk about NVIDIA now hitting a new record high today. BMO raising its price target to a new street high of $565. Reports earnings after the bell tomorrow. It's our call of the day. It is widely owned. Stephanie Link, you go first on NVIDIA. Can it live up to this hype? Oh, I, I just dislike it when analysts do this ahead of the quarter. The stock is up 107% year to date, and it trades at a crazy multiple, over 80 times earnings. But the reason why it's done so well is because it's a combination stock. It's a stay-at-home stock with exposure to AI and gaming, and it's also a reopen stock. Mellanox, the acquisition, will be very synergistic. That's all networking and storage. Um, but also, they have been making a lot of progress in auto and signing up deals with um, Mercedes-Benz, um, on connectivity in the car. That could be $100 per car on content for them. 
And then they've also signed Daimler and also with uh, Bosch self-driving trucks. That could be a $2,000 per vehicle opportunity for them. So they're getting more recurring revenue. And so I understand why there's so much fondness for the stock and all of us own it. But I do think the trends are their friend at this point. I don't want to get off. I'm just nervous as all get out because we could see a big pullback if they don't uh, live up to the expectations. Might be a buying opportunity, though. Okay. Josh, give me your take. And then, Surat, you go after Josh. Yeah, I was looking at the stock this morning and, you know, this is a stock that has never traded at a reasonable valuation. I use Y charts to look at this stuff. And even when I bought into the stock, it was trading at an elevated valuation relative to both the S&P uh, as well as the semiconductor sector. Um, so right now it's like a 90 multiple. I would just say that that is way higher than its average multiple over the last five years. And it's probably... Uh, it's probably discounting some situation where all of the things we've always been saying about the potential for their platform will all just magically materialize and happen. So I agree with Steph. The, the, the multiple is starting to get ridiculous. I don't want to let go of it because I still really feel they're going to be the most important semiconductor company in the next decade. But a lot of that is now already being priced in. I'm, I'm up 700 something percent in five years uh, with, with this name. And the higher it climbs on multiple expansion, the less happy I am about it. Um, so I hate to sound a somber tone as the stock heads toward $500 a share, uh, but that is, that is the reality. We are, we are really getting up there in, in valuation. So, Surat, that's up 40% in three months yeah. to, to Josh's point. So Steph's a little nervous. You heard Josh's tone and his analysis there. What say you? Yeah. I am too. I mean, the expectations are so high and everybody has jumped on this stock at this point. So it makes me wary as to what they're going to say. And, and really, to Josh's point, if they don't fire on every cylinder, uh, you will see this. And historically, this is what happened to the stock. If you look at the chart, it does pull back after earnings when expectations are this high. So as a long-term holder, I would buy more given the opportunity if it comes back. Um, especially for new accounts and clients who are not exposed for it. So, but it is a core holding, and I think it's one you want to hear for uh, own for so many years. Core holding, which means you, you have no inclination whatsoever to take some profits at all. And Only then, when you know, uh, when it get uh, for an outsized position. So, if if it starts growing more than four percent of a portfolio, yes, it's a portfolio prudent move. Uh, but in terms of holding it for a long time, um, you know, unless there's judge the multiple here, wrong. the multiple here is up 150 percent um, just in the last year. So <laughs> you, well, like we talk about multiple expansion for Home Depot. Let's say the S&P is 25 times earnings. Right. And we're saying Home Depot is 29 times earnings. All right. That makes sense to me. Uh, it's 20 percent premium to to the overall market. Can anyone argue that Home Depot is not doing better than 20% of, of, of the market itself. Um, in the case of, of 153% multiple growth over 12 months, I mean, the company didn't cure cancer. Like, they're doing really well in video games, and I think this quarter will be the first time that cloud and, uh, and, um, and data center will eclipse video game sales so and then, maybe that's something to cheer so, about so why not but, i mean it's what do you tell people though i mean if not if not now when like when do you know it's time Surat to say right. everything that you said yeah. is is you know what i checked that box so, check that box check that box i gotta sell this i i just have to take these profits because of no, everything no, no. that josh just yeah, said if not now when it's a great question Surat has it right this is a stock that all along the way hundreds of percentage points to the upside has given you multiple 
uh, multiple cardiac arrest moments. This is a stock that's fallen 15 to 20 percent <laughs> after certain earnings reports. And there was a very notable one, I think, in, uh, in the end of 2018 uh, that scared everyone. And it had to do with cryptocurrency sales of GPUs being down. Yes. It was so irrelevant. Why? But the stock, I think, uh, fell 40 percent on that one. Um, so we've had these situations where the stock has gotten killed. And if you're a long-term shareholder and you believe in the vision of Jensen Wang and um, where, where these platforms are going for automotive and, and all of these things, then you just say to yourself, I'm going to have to put up with some really, really bad months uh, with a stock at this elevated of a price. So to answer your question directly, when do you decide you're done? Let the company screw up. They haven't yet. Let Intel get serious about competing. They haven't yet. So that's kind of where I am with this. Okay. Let's bring in Rahel Solomon now. She's looking at a group of stocks Wall Street says, at least some on Wall Street say, could lead the market higher from here. A lot of energy names in here, too. Yes, indeed. So these are stocks, Scott, that have at least 50% buy ratings with upside to their 12-month price target. Our friends at CNBC Pro created the list. And, yes, most of these names are energy. These are companies like Devon. Uh, Valero and Marathon Petroleum. Bank of America actually out with a note today questioning if it's a value comeback, pointing out that energy saw its biggest weekly inflow since early June last week. Now, Scott, one outlier that isn't energy that may sound familiar, GM. Remember, this was a hot topic yesterday with Jim Liebenthal and that note that called the stock a no-brainer, especially if GM does split their EV business, something our Philip O is actually looking into today. Citigroup is also on this list. So among these names, the top performers from market lows, Devon Energy, Diamondback, General Motors, Hartford Financial Services, and Marathon Petroleum, all up more than 100% for March. Diamondback up 200%. Centene Scott is the only one on that list that's in positive territory year to date. So that's at least what Wall Street thinks. Yeah, appreciate that. Rahel, thank you. Bryn, what do you think about the list? Yeah, I think it's a good list. I think it's interesting because, I mean, energy, if you take a step back from the low of the market, a lot of these stocks are up threefold, but they went to a very, very low level. I think there's still some of some of them are really cheap. I think the energy space is a really good list or sector to stock pick. And so we like names like, you know, energy transfer, um, planes, um, Western. And so a lot of these smaller names, you don't want to buy a stock ever just because of the yield. I think that we're in this environment where you can get a really nice distribution yield with these energy names and get capital appreciation. And I know everyone hates fossil fuels, except me. I don't definitely. But if you look at what's happening in California right now with all these rolling blackouts, <laughs> it's like maybe they got off fossil fuels too quickly. And so this needs to be part of our ecosystem. We need a strong energy independent United States of America. And so I think it's a great time to look at some of these individual names. They've cut CapEx, they've cut spending, and they're being better allocators of capital. So I'm a, definitely a, an owner and a buyer here. Spoken like a true Houstonian, right? I mean, you got to be loyal to your peeps down there. I know what you're doing. It's That's okay. Right. <laughs> hey, Pete does it all the time. I totally get it. All right. Oh, coming yeah. up, John is following unusual options activity today. His new trades are coming up next. First, we give you Chef the uh, S&P sector heat map. Did hit a new record intraday high today. 33.89 is where we currently are now after dropping off just a bit. Led by discretionary. It's a big day for retail earnings, as you know. And you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back after this. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more.
B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. John is tracking unusual options activity today in a couple of stocks. Doc, you tell us what you're seeing. All right, Scott. Uh, indeed, Lyft is our first one today. L-Y-F-T, uh, rideshare, big activity, Scott, in the next week expiration, the 28th of August calls at the 28th strike. So the stock's 27 and change. They're buying one week out calls just out of the money. I bought those, but again, Scott, as you always know, this is deep end of the pool, something that's expiring this quickly. You've got to be quick to react and quick to take profits. Uh, it was a 40, 45 cent option when they bought it. I'll be in them about a week. Second trade, VST. This is an energy delivery play. Um, VST, they're buying September calls in this one, Scott. So a little more time. Uh, the 21 strike calls also paying about 40 cents for these with the stock just beneath $20 a share. I'll be in these about a month, Scott. All right, good stuff. Doc, thank you for that. Coming up, the dollar dropping to its lowest level in more than two years. What the traders are saying about where the greenback could go from here. Halftime's back, just two minutes. All right, let's do the futures outlook. The dollar doldrums continuing today as it falls to its lowest level since 2018 on pace for its fifth consecutive trading day in the red. For more behind that, let's bring in Jim Urio of TJM Services and Scott Nations of Nations Indexes. Guys, good to have you. Uh, just when we thought maybe the dollar was going to bottom a week ago, no, the trend is still intact, it appears, Jim. Yeah, no doubt about it. And, and you know when you have to look at a three- or four-year chart to get the context of the technical move that it's a pretty big deal. But today when it gave up 92.40, that took it out of a consolidation that went back to about July 28th. Now to me, that makes the measuring objective down to 88.50, which happens to coincide with the consolidation period from the beginning couple months of, two, of uh, 2018. But for me to actually get on board with a move like that, I want to see a week close today and I probably want to see some continued weakness tomorrow to confirm it. If it snaps back up above call it 93.11 to 20 area on the upside, that'll meet, to me mean I'm wrong. You guys, and most people who follow me on Twitter know what I'm long in response is. I'm long silver and gold because if the dollar is going to move 5% lower, those things are going to shoot higher as well. Scott Nations, I keep hearing on, on my program how, how the economy is performing pretty well. So why isn't the dollar starting to rise at all? Negative real rates just kill the dollar. And here in the United States, if you take your 60 basis point 10-year yield and you subtract 100 basis points of inflation, well, then you're underwater. But, Scott, we're not the, the, the worst 
uh, house on the block. If you look at something like Germany, they're even more underwater. Their negative real return is about 100 basis points. So why is the dollar being hurt? Well, it's because every other economy in the world is reopening and we're still all stuck at home. And how do we know that all the other economies are reopening? Well, look at copper. Copper up 6% since the beginning of July. And if you really want to see what's going on in Asia, then you can look at, at iron ore prices. And iron ore prices are up more than 20% since the beginning of July. So everybody else in the world is getting back to work, and that means they don't need any dollars. Guys, thank you. Talk to you soon. Jim Murio, Scott Nations. We'll talk to you again soon. Straight ahead, a halftime exclusive PGA Tour golfer Justin Thomas is with us next. We're back in just two minutes. Miss the show? Don't sweat it. The Halftime Report now has a podcast. Market-moving interviews, call of the day, unusual activity, and, of course, Ask Halftime. Look for us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. And subscribe to the Halftime Pod today. With three wins on the PGA Tour this season, our next guest sits number one in the FedEx Cup standings. Justin Thomas will be teeing it up on Thursday as the playoffs get underway in Boston. He's the world's number two player. Joins us now in a CNBC exclusive. Justin, welcome back. It's nice to see you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Coming off the, uh, the Wyndham Rewards champion as well, you got the $2 million bonus as the regular season's best player. I said three wins, nine top tens. I'll tell you what, Tiger has always talked about peaking at the right time. You certainly seem to be right there. I'm trying to, that's for sure. You know, I think all of us try to be peaking around the majors and the uh, come FedEx Cup playoffs. It's, um, it's what we all work for throughout the year. Obviously, you want to play well every single week and every time you tee it up. But uh, there's definitely, definitely times of the year and weeks that uh, are a little bit better to play well than others. Yeah, give us an idea of what you expect as the, as the playoffs get underway. And just in general, what it's been like being out on tour this year with COVID in the background mm-hmm. and no fans at any of the events. Yeah, it's been different, obviously, but, uh, you know, what hasn't <laughs> since March? That's, uh, I would say normal is about as far from you could possibly uh, describe something or anything, really. But the PGA Tour has done an absolutely unbelievable job of, of making sure that we not only have been able to start up, but how successful we've been um, since we started back up in Colonial. And it's it's a testament to them, the staff. You know, the board members, everyone that's putting the amount of time that they have in to make sure that not only we're playing golf because it's safety is more important than anything that we're out here doing. But the fact that we're able to be out here playing at the highest level, obviously, we'd love to have fans, but that's just not where the world's at right now and and what we can and can't do. But we've been uh, we've been doing a great job. So hats off to them. Yeah. The uh, U.S. Open next month. Cameras caught you yesterday uh, out at Wingfoot out in New York. With uh, with Tiger getting a practice round in, tell me uh, tell me about that. That was hard. <laughs> Wingfoot is very difficult. Uh, I'd never been there before, but uh, I do have to say, just my first experience. It was one of my favorite courses I've ever played. I think it's I love the old school design of just you know, there's not it's not terribly tree line. There's not a lot of trees out there, but the holes just have very um, defined definition with the rough, you know, the, and the bent fairways and extremely severe greens. And uh, it's a very true U.S. Open test. It's interesting. We, we, we're lucky today. We, we happen to have a Wingfoot member uh, on our panel today who's a member of our investment committee. His name's Surratt, and he has a question for you. Okay. Uh, 
Justin, uh, so I, I, I would love to find out when you play like a wing foot and then you play some of these stadium courses like you're going to play TPC, what are you finding are some of the big differences and, and what kind of uh, do you find is better for your game, uh, you know, being one of the longest hitters out there on the tour? Uh, well, there's many differences. Uh, I'm definitely not hitting near as many five and six irons this week as I did the last two days at Wingfoot. Uh, I mean, I hit a wood on a par three, which is something that I hadn't done in a really long time before the PGA uh, a couple weeks ago. It's just, you know, but it's a long, tough, very, very difficult golf course. And a place like here, it's, it's going to be a little soft. The course is short to where we're going to have a lot of birdie opportunities, but, um, at the end of the day, the low score wins, no matter if it's, you know, four over or 21 under. It doesn't matter what it is. Uh, you just need to play better than everybody else. Give me um, last. Did you have a. Go ahead, Surratt. Go ahead, Scott. I was just saying, did you have uh, any of your favorite holes or a hole that you think is going to uh, change the match around at the open? I think the the finish is great. It's, it's just a tremendous finishing stretch. It's, it seems like a course that's going to be very difficult to hold on to a lead. Um you know, you could really see someone the last par three in the course is 13, and those last five holes are just right in front of you and, and very challenging par four. So I think that finishing stretch is, uh, as we saw, I guess, what was it, 06? Um, you know, that was a freak, kind of a freak thing, but a lot of guys didn't play 18 well and 17 also to, uh, to you know, change the tournament. Lastly, but before I let you go, uh, JT, you're, you're 27. What's your fancy when it comes to investing? Are you, uh, do you watch the markets at all? Are you a real estate guy? Um, I heard you're a bit of a sneakerhead. Uh, I heard you have a lot of Air Jordans in the closet. So maybe, maybe that's where your money's going. But you tell me. If I'm spending all my money on, uh, on that many pairs of shoes, then I, I need a new financial advisor. <laughs> that's for sure. But I'm very fortunate to where I have a great team. And my dad is very intelligent and uh, in the investment side. But I, I, most importantly, I'm just extremely fortunate to you know, accumulate the wealth that I have at such a young age to where I'm just able to let it compound and um, and grow into something a lot bigger. To that way, when I'm done with golf, I hopefully don't have to worry about too much. But yeah. uh, I know the cool answer is just to blow it and spend it all. But fortunately, I have a good team to let me not do that. I hear you. Thirty-seven million dollars in career earnings. I'm sure there's a lot more on top of that from endorsements and what have you. But be well. Good luck in the playoffs, and we'll see you in the U.S. Open. Sounds good. Thanks. All right. That's Justin Thomas joining us. The FedEx Cup playoffs kick off Thursday, August 20th. It's on our sister station, as you know. The Golf Channel. Look forward to that. Final trade just straight ahead. Time now for final trades. Bryn, you're first. Let's stick with energy. Energy transfer. Energy transfer is one of the largest midstream pipelines. Run a smart balance sheet. It has a distribution yield of close to 18%. You can get income and potential capital appreciation. Okay, good stuff. Surat. Uh, Uber, uh, watching this one, they just launched a subscription basis. I think uh, Wall Street's going to like this, and it could be a catalyst for the stock. Okay. John Nigerian? Workhorse, Scott, EVs, renting them, selling them, seeing some unusual activity in this name right now. All right. TRB? Warren Buffett and I have two things in common. We both love cheeseburgers, Hmm. and we both doubled our positions in store capital during the second quarter, as we learned from the Berkshire Hathaway 13F last week. All right. Um, very proud to be investing alongside of them. All right. Good stuff. Steph. John Deere, quality reopened stock. Tractor sales are on the rise. They're using technology to gain share and increase margins. All right. They report on Friday. Hope I get a buying opportunity. Thanks, everybody. You seek the key. 
But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. 